0: Hello everyone, this is PJ Thumb. One year ago, on 29th March 2018, I went before the Singapore Parliamentary Select Committee for deliberate online falsehoods, or fake news, to use the common shorthand. To my surprise, instead of speaking about my submission to the committee, I was ambushed with a six-hour interrogation about a paper I published in 2013. Or to be more precise, about one paragraph in that paper about Operation Coal Store, the 1963 arrest and detention without trial of over 112 opposition politicians, trade unionists and activists. Why did the Minister for Law and Home Affairs torpedo the select committee, destroy its credibility and waste all this public time and money over a paragraph I wrote in 2013? In this lecture at the University of California, Berkeley, I explain how historians understand Operation Coal Store and the historical evidence surrounding it how this relates to the mechanisms of and justifications for social control in Singapore, and the hierarchy of priorities that influences decision-making for the governing People's Action Party leaders. The slides and the transcript of the talk are available on the new narrative website. Enjoy! Uh, Thank you, Ping, and thank you all of you for joining me here today. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak to all of you and it's really nice to be able to uh, you we'll come to Berkeley to, to uh, give this talk. But what I'm going to talk about today is uh, Singapore's political economy and some of the forces which shape decision-making among the PAP leadership in Singapore. And I'm going to do that by looking at the Parliamentary Committee, Select Committee on Deliberate Online Falsehoods as a case study uh, of the conflicting forces which shape decision-making among the PAP leadership. This select committee, of course, happened almost exactly one year ago today, and I was one of the people called to testify in front of the committee. So uh, I'm, I'm going to talk first about the select committee and set that context and explain some of the things which happened. And then I'm going to go into how that kind of explains a hierarchy of priorities right, and factors which influence decision-making, policy-making um, in, you know, among the leadership. Okay, so first, uh, almost a year ago, I was invited to give um, testimony in front of the Select Committee on Deliberate Online Falsehoods. Now, uh, a bit of background the Select Committee was set up, um, actually, oh, uh, I think it was announced in January, and uh, it was supposed to deal with you know, deliberate online falsehoods or uh, what the government had termed the fake news, right? The uh, term fake news. Now naturally I expected that I was going to speak on my submission to that committee, but instead I was ambushed and interrogated um, for six and a half hours by the Minister for Law and Home Affairs about a paper that I had written in 2013, or more specifically one paragraph in the paper I had written in 2013. Now I, I think he behaved rather inappropriately. He sought to bully me, to attack me, to discredit me, and uh, you know, tried to, to tear me and my work down, and even at one point compared me to a Holocaust denier, which is, of course, unacceptable you know, um, behavior. But then when he failed to poke any holes in my academic work, the PAP government, the establishment, then commenced um, a range of ad uh, hominem attacks uh, and a lengthy smear campaign on me, which continues to this day. Right, with lies published about me online. The chairman of the select committee actually went on to then accuse me of um, trying to, of, of taking part in a conspiracy to subvert Singapore's parliamentary processes and uh, my company, New Narrative, was um, refused registration in Singapore, right, which amounted to a de facto ban of our operations in Singapore and accused of being quote-unquote contrary to Singapore's national interests and a vehicle for foreign interference in Singapore's politics. Later on, when the official report of the select committee was issued, it included a section which uh, declared that I had lied to the committee, and uh, because they couldn't disprove any of my academic work, they said that I had lied about my academic credentials, which was of course, um, you know, utterly outrageous, and uh, that my testimony was being set aside because i lied about my academic credentials and my affiliation at the University of Oxford. So naturally, my colleagues at Oxford came out very robustly to defend me, and academics around the world also came out very robustly to defend me, and the government and the ministers were roundly mocked for their behavior in the selectivity and afterwards. And indeed, I think this whole incident has proved rather embarrassing to the People's Action Party government. Um, it did not put them in a good light, and more than that, it, it was a massive own goal um, with regards to their goals with the select committee. Now, a select committee has many purposes, right? The most obvious is that it's supposed to be educational. You've got experts testifying in front of a um, committee about an important issue, and the findings written out and put in a report that helps the government formulate policy. But another common usage for it, which we see around the world, including here, of course, in, in this country, is, um, is political theatre. Right? We see grandstanding, we see political speeches and point scoring. And a third function of a select committee is kind of to legitimise uh, government policy by going through a process of public, public consultation. So if the government can say that they held a process of public consultation, Then they can argue that subsequent legislation produced by this committee has been scrutinized by experts and the public alike. So the Select Committee on Deliberate Online Falsehoods had all those three purposes. Um, In June 2017, the Minister for Law and Home Affairs, Mr. Kesha Mugum, already declared that the government would produce legislation on quote unquote fake news, right? He said it's a no-brainer. So this is June 2017. Uh, The Select Committee wasn't then announced until much later, but it was was made quite clear that legislation was already fake and complete. Now, this legislation was highly controversial for many reasons. In Singapore, there's been a pattern of legislation being put out that vastly expands the scope of the government's powers and places um, arbitrary decision-making power in the hands of unelected officials right and therefore unaccountable officials for example the definition of contempt of court right, was redefined a few years ago to include any comment on any case from the point where the police start their investigation and if anyone makes a comment on a case once the police start investigating it can be considered contempt of court which is you know such an incredibly broad definition of contempt of court, that it, it almost makes a mockery of the whole, I mean, pretty much makes a mockery of the whole idea, right? And in, quite famously, an illegal public assembly in Singapore is one person or more, an illegal public procession in Singapore is one person or more. And under all these three that are cited, people have been prosecuted, right, for um, either commenting on the case or one person doing, just walking down the street or one person standing in the street, right? And in each case, the um the legislation was introduced and rushed through parliament and you know passed through a minimal consultation so when mr shangmuthum said that it was a no-brainer that they're going to produce legislation on quote quote, big news the expectation um in singapore was that it would follow this same pattern that legislation would be rapidly produced um first reading in one sitting of parliament second and third reading in the next sitting of parliament one month later. But to the surprise of many, the select committee was announced. And we assumed, right, that it was mostly an exercise to legitimate whatever legislation that the PAP uh, government um, you know, was already planning on passing, right? So, why am I? Why but there was also a chance that the PAP genuinely didn't know what it wanted to put in the law. It genuinely did want to try and learn something from this exercise. So some older the activists, particularly those who took part in the 1986 Select Committee, were very much against participating because, of course, the 1986 Select Committee on the Legal Profession Act was entirely political theatre. Right, Lee Kuan Yew just spent hours haranguing lawyers, accusing them of being traitors to their country, etc., etc. Absolutely no pretense at even consultation or pretending that it was anything but. Right, that was a public interrogation, public humiliation. But younger pro-democracy activists like myself argued that, look, if the government offers you a chance at consultation, you know, even if their intent is purely you know, just to, to pretend that consultation, you have to take it, otherwise the next time there's a law, the government can say, hey, we tried to hold a consultation exercise and no one showed up, so why should we consult again, right? So even a pretend consultation exercise would be a step forward for Singapore. And so it was in that context that many of us um, took part in the select committee, sent in written submissions, but also organised other people to take part in the select committee. And this is where my complete new narrative held uh, democracy classrooms and workshops to try and encourage people to write, to discuss, first of all, what they understood about fake news, what they thought should be done, And then, regardless of your political opinion, to write it up and send it in. And you know, I think we were very successful at that. And the fact that the number of submissions to the select committee doubled the previous, more than doubled the previous record for submissions to select committee, demonstrated how passionate Singaporeans really cared about having their voice heard. So until the very last day of the select committee, it pretty much played out as one would expect. The first week you had lots of pro-government pro-legislation witnesses who told the government, yes, something must be done. And then the government MPs on the committee gave them lots of space to speak and give presentations and so on. And then for the second and third week you have people who were less in favor of legislation uh, and more skeptical of the government and the government would harangue them, government MPs on the committee would harangue them and and show them evidence from the first week, you know, and try and limit them to yes-no answers and uh, the members of the committee would be very contemptuous and and cut off attempts by the witnesses to speak, right? But nothing that we didn't expect, right? Standard stuff for, you know, political theatre. But even this sort of exchange would still be a vast improvement on the status quo in Singapore. Then we get to me, and I was the second last, I was supposed to be the third last session on the last day, but I went so long that they combined the the last two into one. And here, we, the, the government torpedoed its entire legitimization exercise by totally ignoring the issue at hand, and instead engaging, as I mentioned, in bullying, in, 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 um, you know, in, in intimidation. And it destroyed any pretense at listening and engaging. So in other words, over the course of six hours, Minister Shamugam delegitimized his own legitimization exercise. Why? Right? All that money spent, all that time wasted to try and fail to take down one academic's paper and just one, one paragraph in one paper from 2013 on an event that took place over 50 years ago with next to no living participants remaining. Why did he do that? And to understand that, we actually need to understand the mechanisms that the PAP uses to control Singapore and the justifications that they use to um, well, justify those mechanisms. And how the PAP then legitimizes those mechanisms, legitimizes its rule, and as I mentioned, the forces which shape its decision-making. So to understand how Cold Store is central to that, right, first we need to understand Operation Cold Store. Now, Operation Coldstore, which was the center of contention for my paper, was the arrest in February 1963 of over 112 opposition politicians, activists and trade unionists, and it effectively wiped out the political opposition in Singapore and enabled the PAP election victory in 1963. Now, at the time, the official statement that was released by the government these communists and their supporters in Singapore, working through the Barisan Socialists and Associated United Front organizations have done their utmost to sabotage the formation of Malaysia. And they are ready when the opportunity occurs to depart from constitutional methods and to jeopardize national defense and security by joining groups resorting to violence and bloodshed as in the Borneo territories. So the justification for the arrest then, right, was that there was a communist conspiracy up to subvert Malaysia and would resort to violence to do so. So the question here is, what actually do historians agree upon about Operation Polestar? Why is this so controversial? Now what historians agree about Polestar is that this statement was not true, right? It was a political statement issued at the time to cover up for Polestar. Polestar was Conducted for political reasons not security reasons. And we know that the government did not have any evidence that the detainees of Operation Cold Store were involved in any communist conspiracy, especially one to subvert Malaysia and Indeed, we know that the government knew that most of them weren't involved in any communist conspiracy because we have the actual case files that the government used on which Uh, you know, in the Internal Security Council to decide whether to arrest these people or not, and the vast majority of them are labeled suspected communists and suspected communist sympathizers and communist sympathizers, right? And only a small minority are labeled communists, and even then, there is no evidence provided in the case files that they are part of any communist conspiracy to subvert the government or to subvert Malaysia. So that seems pretty comprehensive. Why then is there controversy? where do historians disagree on this issue. And actually the most, the only point of contention among historians is actually not on these historical facts. The disagreement is regardless of all this evidence or lack thereof, whether the arrests are still justified or not. So historians who believe that the arrests are justified instead argue for a sort of values-based, right? That the arrests are justified because look how good Singapore became afterwards. Look how good, you know, how prosperous Singapore became afterwards. And that these events are inextricable from each other. And they argue based on what has become known in historical circles as a maximalist interpretation of security, right? Where security is inextricably tied to political outcomes. Which they regard as being necessary for security. So, when I talk about historians who disagree, actually, there's really only one. And that is Professor Kumaramakrishna, right? Um, at um, NTU, RSIS. And he wrote this book to try and discredit the rest of us historians. Uh, you know, Well, not, well I guess discredit is a is an accurate way because he actually starts the book by calling us stupid. So I, I think it's very clear what he's trying to do. Um, and in his book, Kumar, Prof Kumar actually accepts that there is no evidence that the detainees of Operation store were involved in a communist conspiracy. So he accepts that there's no evidence, right? And he actually quotes a whole range of people, doctor Go Goh-King Sui, British Commissioner Lord Selkirk, Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Toh Chin Chai, Malaysian Communist Party, uh, uh, Malaysia expert, uh, CC2, all as accepting that there was no evidence. So instead, Kumar argues that there is a security basis for the arrest, but does this by redefining the word security to explicitly include political outcomes that are favourable to Lee Kuan Yew. Right, and Kumar quotes Dr. Go as saying right here, and he put, adds emphasis to it. There was no immediate security threat. The real nature of the threat was that they could be in a position to take over the state in a future general election. So he makes it very clear that it is a political outcome that he's worried about. That is the basis for his arguing that there is a security basis. When really, what he's saying is that there's a political basis. So the sort of sleight of hand, redefinition of security to specifically include a specific political outcome. So elsewhere in this chapter, he actually also talks about the fact that there is no evidence and then he dismisses that, uh, no evidence that the detainees of Colstor were involved in any communist conspiracy, but then he dismisses that as irrelevant. So his argument thus supports the conclusion that political considerations are the primary reason for store and that there was no evidence that the detainees of store were involved in any communist conspiracy. And instead, he expands the definition of security so broadly to include political outcomes. So, you know, it, it'd be like saying in this country, right, the only way to guarantee that terrorism doesn't happen is to re-elect the current president, right? That's the argument that he's making. But he's making it from the perspective of having 50 years you know, had 50 years passed and looking back and being able to say, look how prosperous Singapore is today, right? And that's his, so it's very much a values-based argument and a sort of counterfactual what-if-based argument. You can't disprove a counterfactual, right? It's, you can't, you know, it's because it never actually happened. It's just a what-if. And so, by arguing that the imminent security threat is that the PAP is about to lose the 1963 elections, he says coal store is justified. So it's it's actually pretty much a whole separate discussion because the historical community isn't really interested in this discussion of whether the, the arrests are justified in the light of Singapore's subsequent prosperity or not. right? What we're interested in is... Uh, whether there was any evidence and as things stand there is no evidence that there was any conspiracy. You know, whether or not the PAP is the best party for Singapore is, I mean, that's uh, not really interesting to this historical discussion. And so what my work including my 2013 paper stated that there's no evidence and we also noticed thanks to the proof that we got from the British National Archives and at the same time, subsequent to this year's select, last year's select committee, the inability of the PAP government to produce any evidence to the contrary, despite their claims that they do have evidence, right? And you know they could, in, you know, declassify the documents from um, the Internal Security Department anytime they want to, but they haven't. So I think we can safely conclude that there is no evidence for any conspiracy, and it's pretty much a settled historical issue. So then. If the PAP government has no um, evidence, then if they have no evidence, then why did they blow up the entire legitimization exercise in order to go after my work and, and me? Well, okay, first of all, to be fair to them, I don't think they actually know that there's no evidence, right? The PAP ministers have all grown up under... And you know, a, a sort of very received version of history, which states that Coastal was a security operation against the communist underground, right? That is still being taught in schools today. So I don't think they actually know any better because the official curriculum doesn't allow for any deviation from this orthodoxy, which you know they've all grown up under. And they don't have time to go and read the documents. I mean, that's what you have professional historians for, right? We read the documents and tell you what they say. And, you know, we're trained to do that, so you've got to take our word for it, right? You know, it's like a doctor giving you an opinion about your health, and you're like, no, I disagree with you, you're wrong. I mean, you know, he's the doctor, not you. But how does this illustrate the broader forces which shape policy making in Singapore, right? And how does the select committee illustrate this? So I've talked elsewhere about a range of mechanisms and justifications which the government uses for political control, and we don't have the time to go into the all the detail around them so instead I will just summarize them here briefly right on the left we have mechanisms of power which the Singapore government uses so political power I've talked about how it's actually a continuation of Singapore's colonial um, colonial political structure, right? Singapore, the PAP government is an evolution from the colonial government in how it governs Singapore in terms of the mechanisms, the assumptions, the values, the institutions, the language that they use to govern. And what the the kind of broader pattern that they've pursued in seeking political control is to ban politics, ban legitimate politics the normal, legitimate uh, political expression that you'd see in any other country, including other Southeast Asian and Asian countries, as being illegal in Singapore, right? So the only politics that in, that is permitted in Singapore is within arenas that the PAP controls, and to enforce that, they use colonial-era um, repression like the ISA and other repressive laws. Social control, is exercised through fundamentally socialist mechanisms which justify the intervention of the state into society. Now again, this is a long history. In Singapore, the PAP government, remember, was elected as a left-wing socialist party to reform Singapore. So in Singapore, the state reserves the right to do things like heavily intervene into your lives to decide where you live, uh, who you marry, how many children you have, uh, where they go to school, It can even decide what your race is, right? As we've seen in the last presidential election. We also don't have a right to privacy in Singapore. So the government reserves all this rights because it says it needs to do this to create a more prosperous, peaceful society, etc. Ideological control is, and apologies for the typo there, uh, exercised by policing speech encouraging self-censorship, and I think most cru- crucially um, controlling the definition of the nation. Who is part of the nation? Who isn't part of the nation? right Who constitutes a threat to the nation? Thereby allowing the PAP to argue that their opponents are not part of the nation and therefore a deadly threat to the people of the nation justifying the elimination of their political opposition with extreme prejudice. Economic control, is exercised via the mechanism of the neoliberal developmental state with the Singapore state playing a massive role, an oversized role in Singapore's economy and running Singapore as a capitalist client state and uh, courting foreign funding to invest and also making it compulsory for all Singaporeans to take part in the neoliberal economy by being wage earners and deeply tied to the tax system. Right In Singapore, you cannot escape being part of the wage uh, economy you can't you know disappear and uh, go into a cash only basis right you need your ic for everything you can't live off the land right you have to be part of that you have to surrender a huge chunk of your income as cpf right so the taxes are really really high so the government holds a huge chunk of your income back and then redistributes it to you as welfare which is then used again as a lever to control you right education housing healthcare. And finally, military control, which is very much built into Singapore with no real distinction between the uh, political and military leadership, with serving military officials embedded in the civil service and moving seamlessly back and forth between the two setups. So, you know, we think of Thailand and Burma as having military-dominated governments. But if you look at the actual facts, right, Singapore has more serving military officers within the civil service and uh, more reservist officers overall, including you know, including reservist officers in the political leadership than a place you know Thailand or Burma. So how do they justify using all this control? Well since World War II, right, so since the colonial government the Singaporean governance has been underpinned by three really powerful myths which are deployed in support of its policies, the myths of vulnerability, development, and meritocracy. So briefly, the myth of development, taking the second one first, is it defines government performance legitimacy in terms of economic performance by using very narrow measures such as gross domestic product, right GDP, which is a, a very narrow measure which fundamentally measures the number of transactions in an economy how that relates to you know, the broader health of the economy right, is a different issue. Then there's a the myth of meritocracy, which argues that anyone can rise to leadership in Singapore based on their ability, regardless of race, language, lineage, social connections, religion, and so on and so forth. But this, again, um, has, is very hotly debated, and there's been a lot of very interesting work re- recently showing that it is, um, you know, there is very little meritocracy and social mobility within Singapore. Now, the myth of vulnerability argues that Singapore's survival is never assured since the country is small and susceptible to political, I mean, external threats, external currents, and comprised of a volatile mix of um, ethnicities and religions. Now, the PAP has learned to cloak all of this by passing legislation through the form, but not the substance, of uh, liberal democracy, right? So you have... um, what people have called rule by law rather than rule of law because laws are interpreted very strictly. But then I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, what you have are laws designed to um, control the population and they pass it through a rubber stamp parliament and follow the proper procedures for creating the laws, right? You have elections which are heavily rigged to ensure the most optimum outcomes, positive outcomes of the PAP, um so that the PAP can claim legitimacy through elections, and so on and so forth. What they also do is they adopt international rhetoric, uh, but changing the actual substance. So when a country talks about, say, things like human rights, rule of law, right? what the PAP means by those things and what other countries or international consensus mean by those things are actually different. Um, But the PAP has defined those strictly Within its own statute to mean one thing, and then they can deploy the, the sort of you know the name for it internationally by saying, look, we have these things, but if you actually go and look at the substance of it, right, they don't amount to much, and definitely not what other other states would assume that they mean. And finally, critical to all of this also is the idea of technocratic governance, where political decisions are passed through ostensibly disinterested, impartial, expert bodies of you know specialists to make decisions. So what you see a, a lot of time with new laws is that uh, they place the power for arbitrary decisions and the arbitrary interpretation of those laws in the hands of unelected officials, like the Attorney General, who of course is the Prime Minister's former personal lawyer and was appointed unconstitutionally because he was two years above the age limit. So what the prime minister has been doing, what the PAP has been doing, is placing key allies in unelected positions and then drafting laws such that the the power to interpret those laws and enforce those laws is placed in the hands of these unelected officials, many of whom are, of course, allies of the prime minister and who are unelected and appointed, and therefore they can escape uh, electoral accountability. And this allows the government then to say, it's not a political decision, it's a technocratic one, right? It's these experts, we are listening to their recommendations. We, the government, are impartial, you know, we, we listen to the experts, right? And it allows them to then, you know, um, pass responsibility for, this, uh, for, for their actions away from them. So, recent laws, like I mentioned, Contempt of Court, Public Order Act, Public Safety, a whole range of laws have all followed this pattern. And in all likelihood, the new law on fake news will also follow this pattern. And, uh, for example, um, extend colonial era controls over society and politics, um, expand ideological control over what the truth is, and thereby encourage self censorship out of fear of of falling foul of the law. You know, and justifying this law via decisions in the hands of a technocratic committee or a person, for example, the Attorney General, who will be in charge of interpreting what is or isn't fake news, right? a person who they can then say is the a specialist or independent or someone who goes to their position based on merit, right? not because of pre-existing condition, uh, connection with the Prime Minister's family, and of course justify the whole thing, the existence of the law, through the myth of vulnerability by saying that we have a volatile mixture of races, religions, that are surrounded by hostile countries, blah blah blah, even though of course, until 1997, the government's official position is that Singapore had never had a race riot. Right. It was only 1997 with the introduction of the new Singapore syllabus that the government suddenly said, oh, the 1964 riots were race riots. Until then, they said it was a political riot caused by agents provocative prov- sent by UMNO to Singapore, and therefore a you know, political riot, not a race one. And then because of the new history syllabus, to uh, because this, the PAP government's vote share had been falling steadily since the 80s, they had been losing seats, lost four seats in 1992 elections, they introduced a new history syllabus, and suddenly what we call political riots were totally redefined as race riots. So you, know, you see how um, this whole idea of um, uh, vulnerability is then deployed. So. The fact then that this fake news law, right, out of the Select Committee on Deliberate Online Falsehoods, has taken so long to produce, especially when Malaysia took only a few months to come up with their version, shows how the credibility of the law has been damaged and how the credibility of the Select Committee has been damaged uh, by the events of what happened a year ago. But I'm sure it'll come eventually. They're just waiting for this whole scandal to die down a bit and probably closer to the election that's coming later this year. But what is more important than the law are these mechanisms and myths, right? And that's why they had to act to protect these above the law itself. So, the reason, for example, right, uh, central to the myth of vulnerability, for example, is that Singapore was vulnerable to communist subversion during the Malayan emergency. Right, and during the Malaysian emergency, this idea of vulnerability provided justification for the government to do a whole range of, of things to totally violate the rights of Singaporeans um, and Malayans. Right, martial laws, suspension of rule of law, suspension of habeas corpus, suspension of due process, detain without trial, ban publications, disperse any meetings, impose curfews, arrest anybody without warrant, etc., etc., etc. Right. And the important point is this, that despite the intent of the British in 1948 that these laws, these emergency regulations would be temporary, all of these, most of these regulations were subsequently codified into different statutes and continue to exist in Singapore today. So laws which were introduced for the sake of an, quote unquote, emergency against communism 48 still exist today and are used by the government to control our population. Right, you have the Sedition Act, the Internal Security Act, the Criminal Law Temporary Provisions Act, which by its virtue of its name, temporary provisions, was supposed to be temporary, but they've been on our statute books over 50 years now. And these colonial era laws were designed rightly or wrongly to uh, control, right, to, to address an armed conflict, but are still used today. The problem is, if you take my work, right, I've shown that special branch documents Show that they never actually had any proof um, of an M- a sustained MCP conspiracy in Singapore at all, uh, as opposed to the rest of Malaya. Right? Not that the communists had any real control of their left-wing allies, who were driven by a wide variety of interests and uh, largely autonomous by the part of the of the MCP, the Malay Communist Party, and that the special branch was very effective at shutting down the Malay Communist Party in Singapore. In the 40s, and was the Singapore MCP was irrelevant by 1950. But what the colonial government did, as the Malayan Emergency receded, right, as they found less and less evidence for communist activity, was to expand the definition of communism so you know more and more broadly in order to justify their repression against the anti-colonial nationalist movement, and so this the peak of this was reached in September 1956 when they were seeking to justify their action against uh, the expanding anti-colonial movement. And so what they did was basically redefine any behavior, right, any form of resistance to government authority to be communism. So this is a memo from September 1956 where they argued that by encouraging the spirit of revolt and resistance, this weakened government authority and thereby supported communist aims. So, uh, Blades, right, the the then head of special branch, writes here in his conclusions that anyone who acts in a communist manner, whether connected with the MCP or not, right, must be banned. And armed with this document, they then proceeded to arrest and detain and banish a whole range of political uh, opposition, activists, trade unionists, student activists, and dissolve a whole bunch of organizations in 1956-57. Now, if we go back to the this statement, right? Issued out the coal store in 63, this sentence in particular here, to sabotage the formation of Malaysia, right? We know that, at the time, they knew that that was a complete lie. Because every single political party in Singapore, including the MCP, was in favor of Malaysia. The right-wing liberal socialist party, Amno, the Labour Front, the PAP, the Barisan Socialists, right? They were all in favour of Malaysia. The dispute was not about Malaysia. The dispute was about the exact form that Malaysia would take. But to say that you know they um, they were going to sabotage the formation of Malaysia is part of the uh, you know ideological control. Right? To create this idea of a Malaysian nation and to say that our political opponents are not uh, part of our nation. They are deadly threats to our nation. Therefore, we are justified in arresting all of them and locking them up, some of them, for decades. So you see, Cold Store cuts through the heart of all these mechanisms and myths that I talk about. Right. It illustrates how, if, if we realize that cold store was an illegitimate exercise, a political one, it then delegitimizes the myth of vulnerability. It delegitimizes the mechanism of um, politics, right? The uh, use of detention without trial. The, a lot of the security mechanisms, control of the press, for example, right? Control of our speech, control of our physical movement throughout Singapore. It demonstrates the uh, you know and delegitimizes the ideological components of the mechanisms of power by um, you know showing how the government has used and abused the definition of the national to further its own political aims. It shows how the government has passed things through the form but not the substance of liberal democracy, despite their claims that Singapore is you know democratic and. It undermines the notion of technocratic governance by demonstrating how a special branch was ordered to create cases for the detention of opposition politicians despite having no evidence, and despite saying that they had no evidence. So in addition to all of this, and lastly, and maybe most importantly, the PAP cannot get rid of coal store because of its centrality to the Lee Kuan Yew myth. The problem with, for the current PAP is that they genuinely have no real achievements on which they can campaign on at elections, right? If you looked at the last election, you look at their manifesto, there was not a single mention of achievements under Lee Hsien Loan. It was all SG50, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, and then more good years, no promises for the future, right? Which Again, a manifesto is supposed to have promises for the future. It's supposed to be a platform about what the party is going to do for the next five years. Instead, their manifesto is all about SG50, Lee Kuan Yew. So the PAP, the current PAP government, are completely reliant on Lee Kuan Yew and his legacy to legitimize their continued authoritarian government. So, Cold Store, then, because it shows Lee to have lied and manipulated and you know abuse the mechanisms of power and abuse his position, abuse his relationship with the British and so on and so forth to um, further his own um, political ambitions. Right? It undermines a crucial part of the Lee Kuan Yew myth as constructed by the PAP government. So undermining Lee undermines the whole legitimacy of the PAP rule and so they find it impossible to break away from it in any significant way. Now, the bigger problem with this uh, reliance on Li Kuan Yu, of course, is that he left power in 1990 and he died in 2015 and the world has drastically changed since then, right? He's um, a product of hot war and then cold war and he was spectacularly successful in his time, but the world has changed very much since then. And today our challenges are different and we need leadership who have different ideas and a vision for the future and who are you know, responding to the challenges of the here and now. But because of this reliance on Mr. Lee's legitimacy, we have a PAP which is trapped in the past and unfortunately unable to get rid of it. So I think Mr. Shamukam would have been better off ignoring my work on Cold Store and focusing on the select committee as it was meant to be, a legitimization exercise, rather than trying to preserve the legacy of a dead man who quite frankly is no longer relevant to the challenges that Singapore faces today but the fact that he couldn't demonstrates the fundamental crisis within the PAP thanks very much i uh, said so about to we'll take questions and all uh
1: yeah. uh panelists so, look um, uh, i just mentioned my new uh upcoming election to uh, uh, do that to uh, make sure
0: that there's uh, democracy and, and legitimacy in today's society? Are there current men and women up for election who want democracy? Mm-hmm. Um, no, the, the, the way the system works in Singapore is you have very strong party discipline, especially the PAP. Um, so we've seen reformers who come into the PAP desiring political change who then end up being the most passionate defenders of the system, because the you know this party discipline and the fact that they are able to control uh, so many, you know, they have such powerful leaders, uh, this incentivizes. I mean, when you have a party with so much power, they they are very reluctant to let it go because I'm sure from their perspective, the fact that they have so much power means that they are able to do a lot more good. You know, I I do believe that the PAP the leadership believe that they are the best thing for Singapore, and that is the best thing for Singapore that they hold on to so much power. So if you go in there, into this party, and you want to change things, you're not going to last very long. And of course, the PAP hold an overwhelming uh, number of seats. What is it? 92 out right? of seats? Despite getting 60-70% of the vote, they constantly get over 90% of the seats. So, uh, the opposition is uh, minuscule and incredibly weak and divided. So, there is really no, no one right now who is openly advocating for um, democracy who is in government. There are opposition politicians who advocate for it, but unfortunately, they have not been able to get in power or get, in, get elected, not even get power. Uh, but even if they did, we use a Westminster system. Which is derived from the colonial um, uh, government. And um, under that system, you only need half the seats plus one, right? 50% plus one to have absolute power. So it's not like a US system with a lot of checks and balances. Singapore has a unicameral government, uh, unicameral parliament, which has complete authority in Singapore. And you only need, um, you know, um, half the seats plus one, to have total power, so there is very little no immediate hope to change there. So my question is, going into the select committee hearing, do you expect what happened during the committee or what expectations do you have going in? Because, um, yeah. Yeah, thanks. So as I mentioned, um, I, I really thought that the would stick to this whole legitimization exercise for their fake news law, right? Um, so with the with other pro-democracy activists, they were openly contemptuous. You know, they cut us off. They would uh, what they do a lot of time was um, show something really horrific. You know, images of rape or murder or whatever, and say, "Do you think this should be on the internet space?" No, no, no. You can you can talk more later. Just say yes or no. Do you think this should be on? space, you know. And all sorts of horrific things and just demand yes or no answers, right? And then they'd show evidence from the first week where all the pro-government people were and they say, oh, this expert so-and-so says that we must have legislation. Do you agree or disagree? No, 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 you can talk later. Do you agree or, just yes or no first, right? So a lot of this trying to force you into narrow positions and then when you do try and say something, they would cut you off, they'd be, you know, you know, as I mentioned, contemptuous um, with a fellow academic, Cherry George, he came in. He actually studies fake news online, right? He is a you know head of the media center for media at Hong Kong Baptist. So he had very interesting things to say, and they tried to not let him say it. So I was sitting in the audience for the session, and he was trying very hard to talk about the so sort of the backfire from passing such a law and how it would undermine trust and create more problems. And he kept pushing to try and say it until finally they dismissed him and he had to beg for a bit more time to actually say it. So they they let him say it but, you know, were openly impatient and then finally when he finished they said, okay, thank you, you, can go. So it's that sort of attitude that I expected, right? With my submission, I, I, I my the main point of my submission was if you want to have a fake news law, fine. But the main producers of fake news worldwide, including Singapore, are governments. Right? And what are you going to do to stop governments from abusing this um, you know, to, for political outcomes? Because we may we have an honest, non corrupt government now, but that's no guarantee that we have one in the future. And so what I was going in there to say, what I want to say is just as long as the government is treated equally under this law, right? that is the most important thing. Uh, if you want to create a you know, crazily restricted law, you know, um, I would disagree with that. But for me, the most important thing is that everyone must be under the law. So that's what I was going to talk about. I expected they would be very contemptuous. They, you know, mocked me and everything. Uh, but instead, my entire submission was completely ignored. And instead, they focused on the, you know, on, on the paper I wrote in 2013. Uh, could you shed some light on your
1: reported meeting with Mahathir and like, <laughs> the reports of you wanting
0: him to steer democracy in Southeast Asia? Yeah, sure. Um, so with Mahathir, right, that was pretty straightforward. I, I mean, the opportunity to meet Mahathir uh, came up and, you know, I, I mean, uh you know. And then, um, what I was concerned about was that he would turn out to be like Aung San Suu Kyi. Right? And for people at Oxford, Aung San Suu Kyi is a very personal failure because she was one of us and now she's turned out to be a genocidal, tax murderer. And the last thing I wanted was for Mahathir to get back in power and start doing all the nonsense that he did in the 80s and 90s again. So I talked to him about his legacy as a leader of Malaysia and in that context I talked about how he could really send an example to Southeast Asia and the world we never actually talked about Singapore, it was all about Malaysia, right, it was all about him. But of course he rejected that, and he argued that Malaysia was not ready for liberal democracy. So I was disappointed, but not surprised. It's still that, you know, he's still the same heart yet, still sharp, right, His you know, still there, still politically very savvy, but he hasn't changed since the 80s and 90s. So that was the context of my statement, where I wanted... You know, the statement I put on Facebook, which was of course later misinterpreted and exaggerated, like how oh, excuse me, sorry, like, yeah, exaggerated, was um, was aimed at him, not at the Singapore government or the Singaporean people, but him saying the people of Malaysia elected you with great expectations to lead Malaysia into a new era of democracy, right? Or at least to protect the democracy, not to backslide. Right? And this is your chance to build a legacy. So that, that was what the meeting was about. It wasn't you know, not nothing at all about Singapore. But of course, as I mentioned, the, uh, the smear campaign against by the PAP government has not ceased. And he seized upon that as a chance to smear me further. Okay, so there are two
1: questions on the side. Um, uh, yeah, let me the first one. Thank you for a very interesting talk. I'm interested in the role of the US and maybe the EU, like in uh, recent years. I'm, I'm just wondering if any members of the U.S. Congress or any recent administrations um, have expressed a criticism of the situation in Singapore and support for you know more pro-democratic forces, or is it just sort of par for the course? To the extent that Singapore you know is favorable to the West and it helps make money for Western financial institutions and Western technology companies, the EU and the U.S. just kind of look away and. Just not—they're not interested in these issues very much.
0: Yeah, um, there have been individual members of the U.S. Uh, Congress, of uh, European countries, of the European Parliament who have expressed, you know, objection mm-hmm. to Singapore's policies. Um, and of course, the in, in recent cycles for the UN periodic review of human rights, um, activists have gotten more organized and gotten it on the record that you know, there's these detentions happening, that there's still the use of detention from a trial in Singapore, that there's still a lot of uh, problems with, uh, you know, free speech and the lack of respect for fundamental rights. But fundamentally, it's, it's two things. One is, is, you know, as you mentioned, Singapore is a key airline. Uh, our port is still incredibly valuable. Half the world's trade passes our port. Um, we're stable and um, compared to, other countries around us, right, Singapore doesn't seem like a problem. And, you know, I mean, to be fair, in a lot of countries around us, if I did what I did, I'd get shot. you know? But in Singapore, at least I know the government will harass me, they'll make my life miserable, they'll they, they sue me, they, you know, I, I joked uh, short, a few months ago that all my friends were either in court, in jail, or in exile, right? And that's what happens in Singapore. But they don't shoot you. So, there's that. Um, but also, of course, the Singapore government is very good, as I mentioned, at um, presenting a very good uh, face to the world, right? And I go around the world and I meet people, especially in the, the, the third world, who aspire to be like Singapore because they think Singapore is extremely prosperous but also reasonably free. So that there is a very powerful PR campaign um, and the Singapore government, you know, it, it controls the media in Singapore. In, uh, all, all statistics are automatically government secrets, right? Unless the government releases them. So they are very good at managing information that gets out there to make Singapore look good. And they love to trumpet it when Singapore does well on any international measure. You know? So um, it's a combination of all these things, right? So I, I know that individual politicians in the US and EU have expressed unhappiness, but when there are so many other far more pressing problems you know, for them. And of course I think in it was stronger in the nineties, um, but today the US and EU moral leadership has declined somewhat. So it's not as powerful as and it's not as not helpful as it, it used to be. But of course I, I believe Singaporeans we need to you know, fight for democracy ourselves, right? The last thing we want is another country to come and impose democracy on us. You know, we like the Mahatma point, right? You know, countries should fight for democracy that works for them in their own context and we need to do that ourselves. And it's our responsibility, not someone else to come and help us. So allies are great and helpful. But ultimately we need to, to get up and get going. Jack, uh, Hi PJ. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh go that way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> two questions, questions for you. Um, okay, one at a time. Because if you do two at a time, I'll forget the second one.
1: Okay, <laughs> Okay, my first question is, uh, okay, not, not a very serious question, but I wonder if you can tell us about your credentials and your current affiliation. <laughs> you know why I'm asking this question. Okay, then uh, maybe I can just go to the second question since, you know this is not a question that you, I think you that easily. But uh, maybe a second and more, um, more uh, serious academic questions. I wonder how you would situate your scholarship in the broader context of Singapore historiography, especially uh, works of like uh, more critical revisionist historians like Lisa Hong, Michael like ba Lukas and others. Uh, uh, so, like, how would you situate your in the
0: broader historiography? How would I situate my work? Yes. Never thought about that. Uh, okay, I mean, the first question is pretty straightforward, as I mentioned, I'm a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford, uh, in the anthropology department, and uh, so the, the, the reason why Jack is asking is, of course, because the government smear campaign, you know, said that, after they couldn't find anything wrong with my work, they said that, uh, uh, oh, how can PJ come be a historian when he's in the anthropology department first, you know, which I it's crazy, I mean, an interdisciplinary research, uh, center in the anthropology department, which includes like, economists and sociologists, and you know. Um, and then second of all, when uh, Mr. Sharmugam asked me, "Can you explain the nature of your relationship to the to Oxford?" Or something I said, "Oh, it's like a visiting professorship, right?" And he and then later they said, "Oh, his title is not a visiting professor; it's a visiting fellow." Therefore, he lied. But you know, you didn't ask me my title, right? You asked me to explain the nature of it, and to a non-academic. You know, I was trying to explain the nature of it, and a lot of time you say, you know, whatever you say, a fellow, a fellowship, non-academics often don't quite understand what that is. So i just say, this a visiting professor in a generic sense. So that's the that's why you know the government attacked me for for quote unquote lying and and all that other nonsense. Um, so how would I situate my scholarship like, in the context of Singapore historiography? I hmm. You know, that, that, that question requires me to look at myself as a, you know, from a historical point of view, um, and I've never really thought about that. Um, I think if, if I can fall back on what I've written in my, uh, my PhD, my books, my journal articles, how I've contributed to Singaporean histori- historiography is chiefly um, by looking at the Chinese newspapers, by trying to bring out more vernacular voices right, uh, into Singaporean historiography. Um, I think other people have chiefly worked in English, um, even as they also sought to bring out more subaltern voices. You know, casting works, uh, his work was on Bukit Ho Sui and people who were uh, recycled because of that. He's worked on uh, leprosy, uh, so in medical history. Uh, same with, uh, you know, say, Liu Kai-kun, uh, Lim cheng you know they, They've all worked on different aspects, but chiefly in English. So when I tried to, when I was doing my PhD, I realized that in uh, Singapore in 1957, according to the census, you know, 11% of Singaporeans were flu and if you wanted to really tell the story about Singapore's biggest, greatest, strongest ever nationalist movement, you have to tell the story in English, uh, sorry, in Chinese and the right? Because that was the operational language, that was the language that the leaders were talking to the people in. So I sought to look at Chinese sources, 10 years worth of Chinese sources, and analyze how uh, people who spoke and wrote and thought in Chinese saw the situation which was drastically different from the English language. So I I think that's my main contribution uh, to the historiography, to kind of open that door. I I wouldn't say that, uh, I mean, for those of you who are Singaporean, if I tell you I'm an ACS boy, you'll understand that my Chinese is not the best, right? I'm not like You know, if I went to Captain I or something, you know, then then I could say, yeah, I got Chinese literature, I can understand all this, all these literary writings. So I, I took a very literal reading of a lot of the literature that I was reading in the 50s and 60s, but I probably missed a lot of the, you know. So there remains a lot to do for other historians who come after me, and I think, I hope that... Uh, They'll go through everything I went through again and find new angles and nuances. But also, we need a historian who can work in Jawi and who can work in Lei to really tell those stories. Does that answer your question, Jack? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Thanks. It's okay. I never thought of myself, you know, never stopped to think of the historiography and my own role in it.
1: Okay, there's kind of a gender imbalance in the questions. So I was wondering whether there are any women. Students um, in the audience who would be interested in asking yeah. a very good. So not
2: <laughs> um, I was wondering. Um, okay, sorry, this is so excited. Uh, like, okay, I think Deep in the, the, the huh? Be proud of your accent. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, in the context of all of this, I think like you can see like um, you got invited and you went in with like the like there was a general consensus that they were already planning to bring up your paper when they invited you, like they weren't going to talk about whatever your your whatever you submitted, like they invited you with the intention of bringing up your paper and what you wrote about it. I think that's what
0: you came across. Well, my, my expectation was the opposite. I thought yeah, it would really be a technical error to bring up my paper, so I really didn't think it. would. Yeah, so
2: I thought like, um, like it really wasn't a very smart move because I think um, if they didn't bring it up, like it's not, it's not like a very hot topic in Singapore. Like basically, like bringing it up has more cons than pros. Like even if they won the argument, it would just be like um, discrediting a historian, right? It's not like it's not like Lee Kuan Yew's legacy. It's very hotly debated in Singapore at the moment. Basically, bringing it up to the Singapore government, I think, like. I I'm just like skeptical like they should have thought this through and like what do you think why like what's the reason why they brought it up? Since like if you actually think it true, like even if you win the argument it's just gonna it's gonna give you a little benefit. If you lose it's gonna give you this whole snowstorm of stuff. So why do you think they did it besides
0: maybe not thinking it true? <laughs> um I, I think First of all, a lot of time, I think we give the PAP government too much credit, again, based on the achievements of their predecessors, right? If you look at the actual performance of the current generation of leaders, I don't really think they have a clear strategic idea um, and a clear vision for where they want to go, or even, you know, let alone a clear plan for getting there. So in that context, what they're trying very hard to do is maintain the status quo in which uh, you have a reasonably stable country with the PAP in control, and to do that, they've got to increasingly crack down and expand the laws. You know, as I mentioned, um, and uh, really expand their ability to exercise power in Singapore. So that's the kind. I think that's the kind of um, um, broad strategy they have in mind, right? By expanding control to the point where they feel like they can control everything to maintain a status quo. So a person like myself and my work um, fundamentally attacks that because I I don't stay in the lanes that they want me to stay in. If you think about opposition politicians, the government has, um, you know, I, for whatever reason, um, opposition politicians stick to bread and butter issues because they're convinced that that's what Singaporeans want. But that's also the one area that you can't beat the incumbent government in because they have control of the power of the purse. They can outspend you no matter how many promises you make about butter issues. The government can simply take those issues. And you know, it could take your policies and adopt them and outspend you and do better, right? So, I mean, I'm not a politician, um, so I'm not the one trying to get elected. So. Uh, I I don't want to criticize what opposition politicians are doing, but I feel like they can only compete on things like human rights um, and uh, the you know the rights of Singaporean citizens because that's an area that the PAP can't move from its position on. It can't co-opt opposition policies on, right? But if you think of you know, so this context, if you were a government that is very much focused on maintaining control, maintaining power, maintaining the status quo, right? And then someone like me comes along and there's an opportunity to attack me. And then also you're a government which is very used to people breaking and folding, you know, who run scared from you, right? And I think uh, the Minister of Law and Home Affairs, Mr. Shamugam, um, has, uh, a lot of experience with people backing down right, when he um, intimidates them. So you combine those things and I think uh, that kind of explains it. right? So a government focus on the short term, on the status quo, uh, expecting me to break and having no real knowledge of my work as well. It was quite clear he hadn't read my work and it was quite clear he hadn't even read the stuff put in front of him before he read it, because at one point he flashed up a paragraph on the screen, and he read. Sorry. Um, he pointed to it as evidence for his point of view, and I pointed out. He so he was saying, you know, why didn't you cite Qin Peng? And I said, Chin does didn't know what was going on. There's no point citing him. And he said, well, here's a paragraph. You know, and this is by Qin Peng. and then I read it, and I say it says right there about the a paragraph. Qin Peng says. We didn't know what was going on in the barist We had no control over the barist And then Shenmue realized he made a huge mistake and quickly moved on. Right? So he hadn't really prepared for that either. So I think you put those all together and I think that uh, they hadn't really thought it through. you know. And it was chiefly just, hey, here's an opportunity to whack this guy, break him and let's do it and break him and we'll, we'll move on. And they did not expect um, that I would be able to successfully, you know, turn the tables on that. Uh, so, Dr. Tang, you spoke a little bit about the means of control that
1: the KP use. Um, so how do you place the leadership succession, and uh, where do you see the means of control moving? Do you think it will be loosened a little bit, or will it change in form
0: or style? Yeah, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, every time I, I give a talk, I always get, uh, you know, the counterfactual, what if, the question to predict the future, you know. And also, sometimes the question about, surely you can't argue that Singapore is a success. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not arguing that. I'm talking about how they you know, control. Anyway, so, you know, questions about the, the reason why I said this, the question about the future, I, I, I'm loathe to predict because uh, I'm a historian, we explain the past <laughs> to help us understand the present. But the future, you know, what, I think what I can say is uh, the choice of Ames Biket, right, he is, uh, I think, a consummate civil servant. And I think he's a very good civil servant. But he's not a politician, and there's a reason why there's a difference between politicians and civil servants, right? Politicians need to inspire, they need to lead. They need to uh, take strong positions and give a vision for our future. And then the civil servants execute, regardless of who's the government, partially, fairly, right? So there's two different roles. But what you're doing is taking a civil servant and placing him in a leadership position. So what you're guaranteeing is the status quo, basically, because civil servants, temperamentally, by training, by experience, are not going to deviate. They're managers, right? They're very, very good managers. And there's a, they play a really important role, but they're not political leaders. So by choosing someone like Heng Swee Keat, they're sending that I think message. I think what they want is again maintain the status quo. And of course, Heng Swee former private secretary to Lee Kuan Yew, close ally of the Lee family. Right. It's quite clear that the Lee family will continue to be in charge, in power. I think Lee Sin-long will stay on to see the minister, and. Uh, yeah, there's all sorts of rumors about other members of, of the Lee family entering, you know, joining politics at the next election. Um, could very well be. Um, but uh, yeah, fundamentally, what they're doing is um, putting someone who's a manager, and so I don't really see any change as long as Lee Sian is still there because he will continue to uh, you know, pull the strings and give the orders from his position as, you know, as senior minister. I think the real change will come when Lee Hsien Loong leaves the scene, and of course he's um, not in good health and he's getting quite old. So uh, Heng Swee has already shown that he doesn't have the stomach to do some of the really nasty things that the PAP, uh, previous PAP, olden the current PAP government uh, do. But then of course uh, Mr. Shambooth, who does have the stomach for that, he will likely still be So it's unlikely that there will be any change in the immediate future. So I, yeah, I understand you're not a
1: politician; you're a historian. Mm-hmm. But um, personally, do you have any uh, political ideology, or what do you think the government should be doing differently, or yeah, what, what should
0: people do to you know, inspire change in the government? I think um, you know this is why I found a new narrative, right? I realized, well, oh, okay. I, I I feel like um, what we really need in Singapore is to really encourage dialogue between Singaporeans. And to really get us talking about important issues with each other, and that's what we're lacking. So what I think we should be doing is organising ourselves more to create change. We can't expect the government to do it, right? And Singapore has a long history of direct democracy, where as people shift, as um, you know, as the values of the populace, uh, of the citizenship, citizenship shift, the government shifts with it. Of course, it's a two-way street. The government's policies have also shifted Singapore's values, right? Like the government likes to say, Singapore is a conservative country, but that's a direct result of government policies to make it more conservative since the 80s, you know. So it works both ways. But I think we need to organize ourselves better for change and new narrative. If you remember uh, when Peng introduced uh, new narrative, um, it's a platform for research, for journalism, for art, and community organization. So, for example, what I did at the select committee, you know, and uh, with uh, Kirsten and um, our colleagues, was the whole democracy classrooms where we got people together in mixed groups to sit down and talk about issues and then after an hour, you know, talking about an issue of a bunch of strangers, you report back to the whole group, right? And that Normalizes the idea of political dialogue, which is very absent in Singapore. It normalizes the idea of talking about controversial issues because we're always told it's dangerous to talk about controversial issues, right? But we held these events where people talked about them with strangers and it was all really cordial and, you know, there were people with very different opposing views even, but they understood and respected each other's views, right? And then from there, once you normalize that then you can start thinking about how do we create change in small ways. You know one of the bits about PAP I think is that it is not responsive to the people. Actually PAP is hyper responsive to Singapore's people right and it has to in order to maintain its high level of control. So you see every time the election, uh, if the election result swings against the PAP there's a whole raft of changes immediately afterwards right, you have all your, you know, Pioneer Generation package, you have Taman, after 2011, shifting the economy leftwards, right, you have all these changes uh, to healthcare, to transport, to, you know, housing, um, all the, you know, welfare policies, so they do respond, right. Of course, the flip side of that is they also then introduced new laws, right, after the votes in the 80s went against them, they started really rigging the electoral system by introducing gerrymandering, by introduce, you know, malapportionment, GRCs, uh, town councils to punish opposition voters, elected presidency, right? So the PAP responds both ways. So they they have to, in order to to keep that control. So I think what they're really terrified of are people organizing independently of the PAP, and that's that's, the, the, the very thing that you need to create change. And I think that's why they you know, basically banned the new narrative because we showed we were successful at just at organizing people to then write in a lot of submissions to the select committee. Uh, and uh, you know, I think most of those submissions were very skeptical of fake news legislation. But the fact that we could organize so many people to write into the select committee and to take part in that political process was very scary for the PAP. They want an apathetic population, which doesn't talk about politics, which leaves it to the, you know, nanny state, which has no interest in uh, organizing themselves for change. Right. So that's the exact things that we need to do if we want to create change. Okay, we probably have
1: time for a couple more questions, and I'd like to ask whether there are women in the audience. <laughs> Um, have something to say. Be brave. What do you have to say about your organization's affiliation with uh, foreign institutes with right.
0: uh, political okay. Okay. Yeah, you yeah, know this whole idea of. uh kind of you a traitor? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, right, I mentioned about defining, you know, controlling the definition. Of the Right, and then so by saying that I'm allied with foreigners, therefore I'm against the nation, and then that justifies the government coming after me and attacking me, and you know uh, eliminating me with extreme prejudice. Right, so you have to unpack this idea of you know when the government says foreign funding. It's actually really hypocritical because in in the same speech, right, if the PM says uh, you know oh we don't want foreign funding interfering with domestic politics, he will also say things like oh we want lots of foreign investment to come to Singapore, and so Singaporeans must tighten our belts so that foreign investment comes to Singapore, otherwise it'll go elsewhere. Well, what is foreign investment, right? It's foreign funding coming to Singapore. And Singaporeans are supposed to accept lower living standards and worse living conditions for foreign funding to come to Singapore to uh, you know, invest and um, you know, maximize their capitalist profitability. So there, this, what the, the government is doing is, is trying to create this distinction between um, foreign funding for you know, purposes which don't affect the government's interests and for purposes which do affect the government's interests. Right, and then tying that to the idea of the nation, and and you know thereby turn people against those who take foreign fu- uh, you know funding full stop, for um, stuff that is against the government interest. And in this open globalized world, I think it's simply impossible to stop uh, you know foreign funding, you know which is a very great area. mean what's foreign, what's was domestic. When money moves around the world so so easily, right? So instead, what we need is transparency about where the money is coming from, how much the money is, what the purposes of the, the money uh, you know, is for. And that's what New Narrative stri- uh, strives to do uh, by being very clear who we get our funding from, what our agenda is, right? We have a 12-point manifesto on our website, what we're going to do with the money, what our overall goals are. So people can decide for themselves, okay, right? It's very clear on our website. We have funding from these organisations, this is what we're going to do with them. You decide for yourself because you are an intelligent, educated, empowered citizen of the country, and you can decide whether that's a good or bad thing. Right? It's not. It, it shouldn't be up to the government, and it shouldn't be... You know, focusing on the funding, right, should be about transparency. So what we're worried about are, like in this country, all this, you know, uh, Russian funding for to intervene in elections. But of course, that is not transparent, right? That is deliberately hidden and concealed with an aim of, you know, destabilizing the country. And the problem is not so much the funding per se, because funding is coming into elections on all sides, right? For causes you agree in, and for causes you disagree. It's the fact that it's not transparent, and you can't take that into account when you think about you know the, the political situation and the situation in the country. So uh, yeah, so I, that's how you need to understand the situation. And you know, so the idea of foreign funding is influencing our living standards in Singapore all the time at this very moment, at the encouragement of the government, and uh, and oh, and also they invited you know Soros funded, Open Society funded organizations to testify on behalf of the government, you know, in favor of government legislation at the select committee. So even just within the select committee, there's a huge amount of hypocrisy because they're okay with open society-funded organizations who are pro-government, who are pro-PAP, but not okay with those who are anti-PAP, you know? And, and again, right, that's uh, the, so the distinction is not really foreign, domestic, whatever, it's transparency and, uh, you know, and ultimately accountability.
1: I'm sorry I came in a little late I class, um, so I don't really have much context about it. Uh but if it was answered before, then uh, maybe I could just speak to you afterwards. But I was really curious, and the, the entire theme of like this uh, discussion so far has been about government control, and I was tr- I, I, I really trying to understand like, um, why, why, why do you feel the government is trying to hold on to this control, and what you know, what's the motivation? And and I've been thinking about this topic for a long time, and like some some ideas that, that that came to my head was okay maybe it's really because we are in a very strategic position and we are an, an Asian majority nation that's capable of speaking English, so they're afraid that Western or European powers can simply infiltrate the the political space of dialogue to influence like pro European policies or something else of that sort. So my question is why why this fixation over government control and what do you think? the government is trying to control and why they are trying to maintain this
0: control. Right, so you came in after the... like
1: right, halfway through the talk? or we came in at 5, 10 or so. Okay,
0: okay so, so after the after, after the talk. Ah, right, I see. Okay, um, hmm. uh, I, I think briefly, what I was trying to explain, what I've been explaining in my work and historically is how this control has come about and evolved, right? And that's what I've been interested in explaining uh, in my academic work. Um, And so this control then takes uh, a lot of different forms and intervenes in our society in our our lives, uh, in our political lives, in our intellectual lives, our social, cultural, religious lives in many different ways. And so in other lectures and other research that I've done, it's been about how this evolved over the years. And um, so it's not really just one thing now, you know, it's not about a response to a specific thing. But if you look at KP, uh, the PB government from 1959, um, they have followed a, uh, this long-term steady pattern of centralizing control within themselves uh, to increase their ability to shape the nation and its outcomes towards a direction towards a vision and under Lee Kuan Yew there was a very strong vision which changed a lot in his time in power right but he always had a vision and what he did was centralize more and more control under his grasp in order to execute that vision and so um, that's why we have a government which has the ability to intervene so much into our lives. And I mentioned earlier, you know, our government can can determine where you live and who you marry and how many children you have and where you where they go to school and it can even tell you what your race is for political purposes, right? So um, all of this was actually created to try and create a more optimal, better society. Along the lines of the Vision, so it's really uh, you know if you want to learn a lot more about this, actually, there's a good book by Chris Trevor. One, it's uh, it's it's actually a bit old now. It was published in uh, 1992, I think, but it, it really explains. It's called the Political Economy of Social Control in Singapore, and how the PAP government just kept accumulating power for the goal of transforming Singapore's economy, society, and politics. And then after Lee Kuan Yu leaves office, the problem is that the PAP slowly starts to lose a vision for where they want Singapore to go and become more and more defensive of their position in Singapore's politics and society. To the point where I argue that in the last two decades, they are now increasing power for, rather than accumulating power to execute a vision, they're accumulating power to stay in power. And so they've become very, you know, moribund intellectually. There's no, there's no vision, they don't know where they're going, right? But what they do know is if they want to preserve their role in Singapore, preserve the status quo, they need to keep accumulating power because um, Singapore's population is growing increasingly rested and unhappy about where the country is going. But then, of course, as they continue to expand and accumulate more power, they upset more people, right? By taking away people's choices and uh, people's um, sense of agency and control over their lives, and so they need to accumulate more power, right? And so it's like a bicycle, right? Right now they've got to keep pedaling to stay, you know, upright. The moment they stop pedaling, they're going to fall over. But they're pedaling the wrong way down there, you know, towards a a chasm or something. Um, so so yeah, so it's, it's sort of broader history of power in Singapore, rather than a response to a specific problem. And this is something I caution people about when you think about Singapore. You've got to understand that when you have a government that's been in power that long, they've accumulated a whole lot of historical causality and a whole lot of baggage, and they've got to keep justifying that. And so they keep changing their story along the way. So never take, for example, what Lee Kuan Yew says at any given point as gospel, because he's responding to a very specific set of political circumstances. And likewise, Ho Chok Tong and Li Hsien they are responding to political circumstances. So today it's convenient to talk about fake news, about terrorism and you know the uh, religious extremism, right? But, of course, three years ago, you know, 30 years ago, Cold War, the exact same arguments were being employed and justified because of communism, You know, and then after the fall of of, uh, the Berlin Wall, you know, the Cold War, you know, then they came up with Asian values, right? Which was a whole lot of nonsense because, you know, Asia's half the world. How can you generalize, right? And Asia has a long tradition of, you know, um, being, um, you know, protest, of riot, of revolution. Um, They just had some kind of fake Confucianism. Yes, fake Confucianism. It was authoritarian values that they were trying to promote, right? So you know, it's again, it's 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 just responses to specific circumstances. So don't think about just this, you know, here now, but remember there's fifty years of baggage to justify.
1: Yeah. Well, let's thank uh, Dr. Khan for such an inspiring talk. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I just wanted to say um, there is a difference
0: between the state
1: and the official nationalism it promotes and popular nationalism. Um, You are part of the popular nation. You are the future of the nation. So you have the power to change it. Thank you for coming. Thank you.